We are continuing our series through the book of Romans entitled, I think rather cleverly, Rags to Righteous. Now, as my wife Susan will readily tell you, I am a sucker for nostalgia. So old photos, videos, songs, places, reunions, heck, I almost cry every time I watch Wonder Years and Stranger Things as I relive my childhood and adolescence. So I tell you all that to say I'm feeling a little nostalgic about our passage this morning. This was actually the text for my very first sermon that I ever preached 30 years ago, which none of you thankfully were at or around to hear, which is incidentally where I got my very, very first piece of uh, sermonic advice. And you've heard me say it before, and it's actually been very helpful over the years. And it's simply this, it's better to be bad and short than bad and long. That's what I was, that's what my mentor told me that first Sunday. And, it, and let, understand, it was blessedly short. I still remember 24 minutes on that cassette tape. Now, we might go just a little longer this morning. I just want to give you a fair warning than that, but just a little. Now, as we saw last week, Paul has laid out for us, beginning in Romans 12, his Christian manifesto. Now, a manifesto, of course, and here I'm quoting from the dictionary, it's a written statement declaring the intentions, motives, or views of its issuer. Now, of course, we know history is littered with famous and then also infamous manifestos. So the Declaration of Independence is a, is a manifesto. Mein Kampf by Hitler was a manifesto. The Unabomber wrote a manifesto. But what we need to understand as Christians, or even as people, manifestos are not just for famous or infamous figures in history. We all live by some sort of manifesto. All of us have a, an internal, even if it's undeclared, even if it's unrecognized, all of us have a set of values or priorities or purposes that guides our thinking, our decision-making, how we order our lives, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what it is that we think is going to be most important for us. And what Paul does in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we saw this last week, is he lays out the supreme Christian manifesto. It is the clearest manifesto in, in all of Scripture as to what embodies our lives as believers. And let, let me read it again. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we camped out on these two verses last week, and we tried to dig into them, and we also followed it up by, by doing some devotionals in our, in our pastor series during the weekday um, on these two verses as well, and, and for good reason, right? This is the headliner for the rest of the book. Paul is going to take these two verses, and he is going to apply them to all areas of life, individual and corporate, through the rest of this book. He's going to talk, he's going to apply them to relationships and government and politics and conflict in the body and issues of conscience and disagreements among believers. But if we were to have to guess, what is the very first area 
The very first aspect of the Christian life that Paul wants to address right out of the chute, right on the hills of Romans 1 and 2, what would you guess it would be? I would not guess it would be what it is, but Paul wants to talk to us this morning about service, what it means to serve one another in the body of Christ. Now, there's a reason for this. Remember that the church in Rome was predominantly um, Gentile Christians with a smattering of Jewish Christians, and these were two groups of people who just did not get each other, right? They're, they're, they had different customs. They had different backgrounds. They had different traditions. They shared one Lord. They shared one faith. They shared one baptism, but they did not share sort of the same philosophy of life. They looked different. They did things differently. And this was the occasion for conflict, division in the church in Rome. In fact, remember, the book of Romans is not just a systematic theology that God dropped magically down upon the church for us to know more theology. It is an actual letter. And Paul is writing to actual people in an actual pastoral context. And this is part of the fabric of what's going on in the church in Rome. It's why Paul spends so much time to say, you think you're so different, but let me tell you this, you're all sinful. You're all in need of grace. You're all in need of the same Savior. You're all in need of the same gospel. And I can't think, I can't hesitate, I mean, I, it's not lost on me how, I, how relevant I think this is for the contemporary church. Church, capital C, but also church, local church, little c here at Four Oaks. Because what these past few years have shown us, have they not, is that we can have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We can be completely unified theologically about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We can share core theological beliefs, but be divided on a whole host of other fronts, can't we? Political, societal, cultural, philosophical. So it was with us, so it is with the church, was in the church in Rome. And when we think about what is it that Paul is going to choose to talk to them about and to us about, it's simply this, just serve one another. I kind of call this the Elvis Presley theology, right? A little less conversation, a little more action. Paul's like, we don't need more symposiums. And by the way, talking is good and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, Paul says, stop talking, at least in that way, start serving. You know, it's hard to be angry long-term with someone you're serving. It's hard to be bitter long-term or angry long-term towards someone that God has called you to lay your life down for. In fact, we're going to see, Four Oaks, that service is the great antidote to disunity that Paul is wanting to address here. So it was for them. So I hope and pray it will be for us. We're going to be in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. And if you can, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read God's word together. Beginning in verse 3, Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Father, we want to get the right order in our hearts this morning. We are not called to serve to earn grace from you. We are called to serve in a response to the grace that you have given us. Lord, we don't want to misapportion the order here. And so, Father, I do pray as your people that we would have an open hand, an open palm towards who we are, who you've made us to be, and the gifts you've entrusted to us. And Lord, give us a heart of faithfulness, obedience, and openness to what you would call us to as the body of Christ. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Please take your seats. When it comes to service, Paul in this passage wants us to give thought to two things, okay? Two and two only. And I encourage you as we look at these two things Paul wants us to consider that you would really locate yourself in the passage. That you would not be thinking about, you know, so-and-so just really needs to hear this passage. You ever done that? I've never done that. But anyway, I heard that people do that sometimes. Be thinking about, well, what is God's claim or call upon myself? How do, how do I find myself in here? And here, here are the two things we're going to look at. One, a way to think about ourselves, Paul's going to give us. And second thing Paul's going to give us is a way to think about our gifts. A way to think about ourselves, a way to think about our gifts. So let's look at the first point, a way to think about ourselves. Paul introduces the topic, the theme of service here in verse 3 when he says, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So first of all, Paul says, God has assigned a measure of faith to you if you are a believer. And what is this measure of faith, we have to ask? Well, the word measure, it just means like a standard or a portion and so when Paul is talking about a measure of faith, I think, and you will see this, I think, come, become clear in the passage, Paul is talking here about the gifts that God has given by his grace to every single individual believer that he calls for them to use in the service of the body of Christ. Paul alludes to this again in verse 6. Look there. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. Understand what Paul is saying here is that God has apportioned grace for you. And here we're not talking about saving grace, okay? Although that's the foundation. And that's, that's the, the basis upon which all other grace comes. What Paul is talking about here is what we would call serving grace. Grace that God has given us to serve with the gifts that he has entrusted. And of course, 
This echoes what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You're probably familiar with this verse. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There it is. I don't think it could be any, any clearer than, than that. Now, before we can talk about, before Paul can talk to us about what we are to do with our gifts, how we're to discern them, how we're to leverage them, how we're to utilize them, he wants to do some spade work, so to speak. He wants to do some digging around in the garden of our hearts and our souls as sort of preparatory work for this endeavor. And he begins this, but look there again in verse 3 when he says this, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, on one hand, you could say that's true in every circumstance, right? That, that pride is the great human sin, certainly that's true. But Paul, remember, Paul has a very specific context here. He's talking about this admonition in relationship to evaluating ourselves and understanding who we are and the way that God has gifted us. And we have to say, why would Pastor Paul, why would the Apostle Paul, and I can see where this, this Apostle Pastor Paul stuff can get very confusing in your community groups, I totally get it. Why would Apostle Paul start here? And I think you know the answer, right? Paul knows all too well, just like we do, that the human propensity when it comes to our own strengths and abilities and gifts is not to underestimate them, but is to overestimate them, to overinflate them, to, to think of ourselves in sort of exaggerated terms. And, and what happens as Christians when we ha have this over-exaggerated sense of, of who we are and our gifts and our abilities is that this can very well breed discontentment in our service. Now, these are all things, well, while we, we may not say them out loud, we say other things like, I'm having a season of rest, or I'm giving service a break. Really what's going on sometimes in our hearts is, I'm overqualified for that assignment. I should be doing something more important. I could do that job better than that person, and you might, right? This act of service, I thought it was going to be a stepping stone into bigger and more public things, but that's not what it is, and so I'm going to go somewhere and do something else where people more readily recognize. Again, not, not not what we necessarily say out loud, but it's what's going on in our heart. And this is called, what I'm going to call, the Korah effect. Okay, now who is Korah? Now, Numbers 18, you can turn in your Bibles there, we'll also have it on the screen. The Korah effect comes from Numbers 18, where Korah led a rebellion of the people of Israel against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And of course, the end of that story um, doesn't go well for Korah. The earth opens up and swallows up him and his family. But that's not the point of, of, this, of this illustration, okay? The point of this illustration 
is to understand what was going on in Korah's heart. Now, I want you to think about this. Korah was a Levite. He was of the tribe of Levi. And it was to the tribe of Levi that God had given the very special task of being the priests to Israel. They were the ones to care for the tabernacle and the temple. They were to do the the priestly services of of worship and cleansing and and offering up offerings and set up and take down and attending to the Holy of Holies. I mean, it was was an amazing privilege. And and, and the Levites did not have a place to live. They had to kind of sort of rent their accommodations from the rest of the tribes. But nonetheless, they were special set apart to do this amazing service. Now, however... There was only one family in the tribe of Levi that was allowed access to the holy room, to the holy of holies. Only only one family could get in there to handle the sacred Ark of the Covenant and the rod of Aaron and all the other accoutrements that were in the holy of holies. Only one family, that was the family of Moses. That was the family of Aaron. That was the family of the high priest. So, So you get the idea, right? There's the people of Israel... Within the people of Israel is a group called the Levites that were to to minister in the temple. But within the Levites, there was one family that had, only one family that had access to the Holy of Holies that were able to minister to the high priest as a high priest. Korah was a Levite, but he wasn't part of Aaron's family. Korah was a discontented Levite. Or as Will Ferrell and Elf might say, he was an angry Levite. That's what he was. Now, number 16 says this. Now, Korah took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, no small number, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, I want you to notice how good Korah is here. He is good. Because a lot of what he says is, is, is true. God is with the whole congregation. Absolutely. Um, God is among them, every one of them. Everyone in the congregation is holy. This, this, is, this is all true. But then he says, but why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? And it's very interesting how Aaron and Moses respond to this. They do not call for a focus group. They, 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 they do not invite everyone in for a powwow, Okay. And here's why. On one hand, this sounds so good, right? Who can argue against equality? Who can argue against equity? And particularly in our culture, we could very much hear ourselves or others we know say these very things. Those leaders, they are a bunch of elites. We can all serve. We can all have the same privileges. We can all have the same responsibilities. Aren't, isn't Corridus fighting for the little man? Isn't he just wanting to empower and everyone to feel included and belonging? And isn't this essentially a good thing? 
But what we find in Numbers 18 is that this was all just a show. It was a sham for something that was lurking in Korah's heart, and I would dare say lurks in our hearts as well, and that was an ungodly ambition. Listen to what Moses says in verse 8. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And here's the kicker. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. Moses puts his finger on what the real issue is here, right? This wasn't about Korah's concern for everyone else. This was about Korah's concern for Korah. He wanted the priesthood. And Moses had to, you, you, can, just, you can just see Moses pleading with Korah, right? Korah. Is it no small thing that you get to minister in the house of the Lord? Korah, don't, don't you realize what a sacred privilege it is to be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord? Don't you see that what you've all been given, Korah, has been by the sheer grace of God? Guys, it's just a reminder, just a reminder, not the main point of the story, but just a reminder no service is too small in the eyes of the Lord. He sees everything. And what he is most concerned about in your service, make no, mis make no mistake, is your heart. And it's my heart. Now, in doing this and sort of preparing the spade work, the groundwork here, the Apostle Paul, as we're drawn to this story... It's, it's, a, it's a reminder about what's lurking in all of our hearts. And something I'm going to say, and I think this is true wherever we are, wherever we work, wherever we serve, whatever position we hold in the workplace or in the home or ministry or church, all of us deep down in our flesh aspire to the next rung on the ladder. If I could only have that position, if I could only have that job, if I could only have that company, or that church, or that group, or that friendship, and when this sort of is a breeding ground in our hearts, it can really destroy the heart of Christian service. It can destroy the heart of God-given hierarchy and authority. And this is what was happening with Korah. Listen to what Greg Morse from the Desiring God website say, says about this. He says, the spirit of our age feuds against God's authorities because it feuds, listen, against God. You have gone too far, it whispers of those above, for all are special, every last one of us. It triggers explosives at the base to collapse categories of parent, child, pastor, sheep, teacher, student, policeman, citizen, elder, youth, employer, employee, crumbling them to our harm. God gives us a world with order for our good. 
mother over the child, father over the home, king over the nation, pastor over the congregant, and most importantly, Christ over all. But the Korahs cannot tolerate any Moseses and Aaron's because ultimately they want the Savior's scepter. Now, what would Paul say in this passage to help all of us combat this? To help all of us sort of get the axe at the root of discontentment and ungodly ambition. And there's two things I want to point out in this text. Now we're back to Romans 12. First of all, Paul reminds us that it is God who has assigned. See that in the text? It says, God assigned to each in proportion to our faith. In other words, anything that you and I have, any gift, any talent, any ability, any portion, any influence, any platform, whether, no matter how big or how small, it has been given by the sheer grace of God. That is a gift to you. We did not earn it. We did not merit it in the eyes of God. It is simply a gift by His grace. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's like the trust fund baby bragging about all the money he has. And what did he do to earn that? He was just born, right? Guys, it's much, it's much darker than that for us as the children of God. We've done nothing. We've done nothing except contribute our sin by which God has freely wiped away by his son Jesus Christ and poured out his grace upon us in the form of a measure of faith of gifts and to say this belongs to you. The second thing Paul says, look back at verse 3, he says, we are to think about ourselves with a, here's the term, sober judgment. You know, being humble does not mean not thinking of yourself at all. That, that's not the antidote here, right? The, what Paul says when he says to think with sober judgment about ourselves is know yourself. Make a proper and true assessment of who you are. As, as Dirty Harry would say, a man has got to know his limitations, right? And knowing yourself, and this, guys, this is so hard for us as humans, but particularly as Americans, affluent, wealthy Americans, this means coming to realize that you and I are not omnicompetent. As much as we wish that we were. As much as we try to pretend that we are. Because to show weakness, to show vulnerability, to show deficits is to communicate some sort of shame or failure. But what we are reminded of in this text is thinking soberly about ourselves is not a shame, it's a grace. It's a humility. It's a gift of God to know, you know what, God? You have not equipped me to do everything. You have equipped me to do a few things, and I want to do them really, really well and faithfully and in faith. 
This is why we need the body of Christ. Look back at the text. Paul says, many members, not all the same function. Just a little point of application. What is the gift you don't have that you wish you did? We all do. What is the position that you wish you had that you don't have? What is the thing that you aren't doing that you wish you were doing? Now, let me say this. There is a place in the kingdom of God for holy ambition. Paul says, he who aspires to be an overseer aspires to a noble task. There is such a thing as a holy ambition to make things better, to do things right, to advance the kingdom. But that's not what Paul's talking about in this text. He's talking about the thing that so often inflicts our heart with discontentment, and that is having an unholy ambition. And I'll I'll grant you, sometimes it's hard to know the difference, which is why we need each other, which is why we need the body of Christ, which is why we need to say, brother, that, that that sounds like that's more about you than about them. That sounds like that's more about this than about that. We have to have, and we're going to move on from this point in just a second, a John the Baptist theology of ministry. What is the John the Baptist theology of ministry? Look in John chapter 3. This is John speaking, and he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Remember, we had a pastor's gathering a few years ago, and Bob Evans, who's now retired from the senior pastorship at Wildwood Church and has moved on to North Carolina, he had us all stand up which in a room full of pastors was, was somewhat awkward. But then what he had us do next was even more awkward. He had us repeat this line from this verse and have us all say, I am not the Christ. Not once, not twice. It seemed like about 50 times by the time that we were done. And as we said it over and over, it became so blatantly like obvious and humorous which begged the question, then why are you trying to be? He must increase, but I must decrease. Do you know that this was true for the Apostle Paul as well? Look back at verse 3. When Paul says, by the grace given me, what is Paul speaking of there? He's speaking of his apostleship. And, And maybe you were in the church in Rome thinking, man, I wish I had Paul's position. He's that apostle. He gets to travel around. He gets to see all these different people. He gets to write letters. He gets to tell people what to do. He gets to have authority. I mean, like, that's got to be the life for Paul. Guys, if you've studied the life of Paul for one moment, you realize his apostleship is nothing that you would desire. Paul lived the life of the cross. Beatings, torture, prison, hardship, being maligned, suffering, This is because God ultimately doesn't call us to service in order to exalt ourselves. He calls us to service in order to exalt 
Christ. Paul says this is a way to think about yourself. Secondly, lastly, here is a way to think about our gifts. And this is where I would love it if you prayerfully begin to locate yourself in this text. I'm going to try to make this, really steer this in the practical direction for us. In terms of, well, what does this mean, Pastor Paul, for right, me here right now today in terms of my gifts to the church body? Paul reminds us of something in verse 5, and it's startling if we, if, if we think about it for a minute. Look at verse 5. So we, he's talking about the body of Christ, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now, we've been talking about this idea that our gifts ultimately come from God and belong to him and are to be used in stewardship to him, and that's totally true. But Paul reminds us of something else. Not only do our gifts not belong to, to us, and they belong to God, but they don't belong to us, but they do belong to the rest of the church. They do belong to the rest of the church family, the community of believers. Do you realize that? Just as you were not your own bought with a price, just as you were not an individual member of the body, but you're a part of the whole, your gifts have been given as a gift to the body, and in that sense, don't belong to you. They belong to the corporate we. Now, back in the 70s and 80s, spiritual gift inventories were all the rage. You probably took some of those, right? And this is where we would type people according to their, to their spiritual gifts. So I need to have all the teachers over here, and the prophets over here, and the healers over here, and the mercy people over here, and those who don't have any gifts over there. Um, no, th there's none of those, none of those. Now, we're way more sophisticated than that now. We just now put people into categories according to the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or things like that, okay? Which can be super helpful, okay? Not, no, I'm not hating. But, if, but here's the danger there. If we're not careful, those things oftentimes become about who? They become all about us. I'm a teacher. I'm a prophet. Um, these are my gifts. Now, I, what I need you to do is to give me a platform to use them. And if you don't, I will go somewhere else to find somebody who will tell me how awesome, I mean, I will go somewhere else where I can faithfully use my gifts, right? No, 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 Paul says, wrong, wrong starting place. We belong to each other, gifts included, for the building up of the body of Christ, which is, I think, what stands behind Paul's imperative. Look at verse 6. It's not a suggestion. It's not a tip. It's not a question. It is an imperative. It is a command. It is not an option. Verse 6, what does he say about your gifts? Let us use them. Guys, do you realize to not use your gifts hurts the body? See, I've seen some of you um, come in here with injuries. You've had a surgery, you're on crutches, your arms in a sling. And for those of you who this has happened to, you know when you are injured or have an operation on something, it's, it doesn't just impact that one body part, right? 
What it does, it impacts all the rest of the body. It makes everything harder. Things take longer. There's things that you used to do that you no longer can do. You have to overcompensate. This part has to do this thing that it was not designed to do. This is a pretty rich metaphor if you keep going with it, right? Guys, the same thing happens in the body of Christ. That when we don't treat our gift as belonging to the Lord and to one another, it's the body that suffers. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Now, here's the kicker. As God's stewards, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, what does that mean? See, when Paul says God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus, which is true, how, how does that happen? Well, one of the instrumental foundational ways that God meets the needs of the church body is through the church body. One of the ways that God dispenses his grace, not his saving grace, but his sanctifying grace, one of the principal ways God dispenses his sanctifying grace to you is through your brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the chief ways he wants to use your gifts is to dispense grace to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what we find as the pattern throughout the, Old, throughout the New Testament. To, to sort of emphasize this point and to sort of help us locate ourselves in what Paul's saying here, Paul then gives us a list of spiritual gifts. Now, there are several lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. And here's what's interesting. None of them are the same. They're... they're there's certainly overlap, there's similarities, but there's a lot of differences. Now, why is that? I think it's because when Paul lists out different spiritual gifts, he's never trying to be exhaustive, but he is trying to be comprehensive. And here's what I mean. When you look at these gifts that he lists out here, and by the way, we don't have time to unpack these this morning. We'll do that this week on our pastoral devotionals. But when you look at these different gifts, the gift of prophecy, the gift of, um, the gift of serving, the gift of teaching, of exhortation, of generosity, of leadership, of mercy, all of these gifts, what Paul is doing here is he's trying to communicate that everyone has a gift and that there is that, that God's grace extends over our church family in such a way that we have all of these gifts present right here, without exception. See, there is a, there's a claim on everyone here. See, there's speaking gifts. There's behind-the-scenes gifts. There's serving gifts. There's generosity gifts. There's leadership gifts. There's gifts of words, gifts of deeds, gifts, gifts of action. Do you see what Paul is doing here? You can, you can locate yourself somewhere in here. I think that's Paul's point. Now, where do we begin? What does this mean for me? And I want to end this time with one question, just one, and one exhortation to get us to think about what this practically means for us. 
Here's the first question. Number one, are you generous with your gifts to this local church? Because if I could pinpoint one word that I think would fly as a banner over all of these gifts that Paul lists out here, I think it would be this one. It would be generosity. Generosity of time, generosity of money, generosity of priorities, generosity of ourselves, generous with everything that we have and everything that we are. The question is, to whom? To whom? Guys, almost every letter in the New Testament is always addressed to a local church. And when Paul is speaking, whether it's to the Christians in Rome or the Christians in Corinth, and Paul's exhorting them to fan into flame the gifts that God has given them, he's not saying, now now think about this and go find somewhere out there to serve. Guys, sometimes, let's be honest, it's easier to serve people out there than to people in here. It's one thing to serve people that you're not going to see. Maybe you'll see once, maybe you'll see twice. It's quite another to say, well, as you're thinking about serving out there, hey, I have an idea, serve the person right next to you. That Gentile, go serve him. That, that Jewish Christian, go serve her. And by the way, guys, this is not any sort of statement about what kind of ministry we should have outside the church. We must do those things. We should do those things. Those are part of our call to the kingdom of God, whether it's the Women's Pregnancy Center or Safe Families or a hundred other ministries. We absolutely must and should do those. But that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is does the local church, is it the locus of your spiritual life? Is this the place where you give? and receive, and serve, and pour yourself out, and develop relationships and community. Because one of the things Paul makes crystal clear in his letters is where you receive ministry, you give ministry. So that's the first question. Does this local church have a place for you to be generous with your gifts, are you doing that? That's question number one, and here's question, here's, here's the exhortation. Just quoted it a second ago. Let us use them. Guys, sometimes we make this so much more complicated than it needs to be. Well, Pastor Paul, I've really been praying about a place to serve, and God showed me, I just don't have a piece about that in my life right now, okay? And typically, I serve Every time Halley's Comet like, comes by the Earth, that's every 76 years, and the convergence of Jupiter and Saturn, and when, when everything aligns perfectly in my life, that's the time for me to serve. Guys, you'll never serve. That wasn't the context of the New Testament. All of these exhortations for service are given in the heat of battle. There's never going to be a perfect time and a perfect alignment. So what's the most important thing for you to do? I can't answer that question for you. Just do something. See, it's like career counseling, right? You don't learn what you love to do, what you're good at doing, what God blesses. You don't do that by just taking a test or reading a book. You have to practice. You have to do. 
you have to fail. You have to succeed. You have to, you have to get to a place and say, you know, this wasn't exactly what I thought it would be. Boy, I'm learning something about myself here. That will never happen in a vacuum. That will never happen from a seat. It always happens while we are in motion. Because let me say this, and I don't say it as a point of shame. I say it as a point of vision for us. If every believer in this church obeyed this most basic command to let us use them, our church family would be unrecognizable. As it would just, it would, it would be a place of irresistible grace and influence. And let me just say this, though. I believe we are a serving church. I look, guys, y'all have been amazingly generous with your giving. I think about the fact that we have filled up two services with children and youth workers. Guys, we have an army of community group leaders and re-engage leaders and restore leaders. Guys, we, I mean... Our church family is a serving church family. But I want us to, I want to encourage us to excel in this all the more. This is where I think, let me ask you to do one thing that I think will help us as leaders to help you. So Ephesians 4.11 says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We have a responsibility as leaders, particularly as pastors and elders, to fan into the, fan into the flame the gifts you have. And let me just say, I don't think we've always done a super great job of that. And one of the ways that we want to do this is that we want to know who we are as a church family better. Your gifts, your dreams, your desires, your vocations, your backgrounds. And so we're going to send out an email right after this service to every, to every member, every attender. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a skill mapping survey. It's not a spiritual gifts inventory. It's, a, it's, it's just a 10-question little thing that says, we want, to, we want to know a little bit about you. We don't want to know how much you give or any of that. We, want to, we just want to know, okay, what's your background? What, what do you do for a living? What are your gifts? How have you served in the past? How can you see yourself serving in the future? And guys, every time we do something like this, we learn so much. Because when we had this ministry over at Allegro sort of deposited into our laps, um, there was another pastor who was doing it, and Allegra was the assisted living facility right across the street. And we took over that, that ministry. Guys, peop, a lot of you just came out of the woodwork. You were, you were like, I, I have an opportunity to teach over there. I have an opportunity to lead a Bible study. I have an opportunity to meet with, with elderly folks and to really invest in them. And guys, there's, there's been an army of people besting over there and it happens as we're, we become aware that there is a burden and a need and a giftedness on the heart of many people here to do that. Guys, when we started our security team, I learned two things about a large segment of you. Number one, a lot of you love guns. And number two, a lot of you want to protect people. And I love both of those things, right? And I'm so thankful. Guys, we have people serving on those two teams that I think hadn't served, not, not, by, not, not always, but some of them had not served in other places until then. 
And so just filling out this little survey for us helps us to know you better. We can say, you know what? God's gifted Foros Kalarn with people who do X or people who do Y. And we want to fan that into flame. Ultimately, though, we want to end with this. Why do we serve? Why do we serve? Guys, we serve because Jesus first served us. We serve as a reenactment of the gospel story. Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to what? Serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And as the people of God, when we give ourselves away, we are walking out in visible form. Here is the gospel. As Jesus laid down his life, as he died for our sins, as he has given us new life in him, so we share in his grace with you. Let's pray.